Hello, this is Rob Massey, and welcome back to the Planet Jesus podcast. This is episode two, Inclusion and Exclusion, the argument that killed Jesus. In this episode, we will see how good people can do bad things and how our cultural and ethnic biases can prevent us from being the humans that God has called us to be. We're also going to see how Jesus' selective use of the Old Testament helped reveal this tendency within humanity. I hope you enjoy the program. So let's start by looking at the story written by Luke. He was an early pagan convert to uh, the Jesus movement. And uh, in Luke 4.16, he begins this story. And he came to Nazareth. He's talking about Jesus here. Where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll. He found the place where it was written. Well, let's stop here for just a second. If we have read up to this point, if we had been reading Luke from Luke 1 all the way up to Luke 4.16, we would have seen in the narrative that Nazareth is identified as Jesus' place of settlement after his family was exiled in Egypt. It was there that he grew up. He grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. That's, that's what Luke 2.52 says. So this is the town that he grew up in. This is the synagogue that he went and played at and then was educated in. This was his home church. The synagogue was central to Jewish worship and culture in the first century. The design of the synagogue itself allowed for open dialogue and participation. We're going to see the openness here in the story. Uh, but another place is also in Acts 13, 15, where a ruler of the synagogue invited Paul and his company to speak if he had, they had anything to say. So I want you to think about the open mic night at the Bluebird Cafe. It's much freer than our modern churches, with open dialogue between the speaker and listeners, where listeners became active in the conversation. Apparently, in Jesus' synagogue, he had a practice of reading and interpreting the scripture. Uh, Joel Green, he was a commentator on Luke, he draws attention to the second half of verse 16 and 17 and also verse 20. He says that the quotation from Isaiah is kind of sandwiched in between those two passages, helping to create a sense of drama, slowing down the action. It's the use of the verbs related to Jesus receiving and unrolling and reading and returning the scroll that help build the tension and slow the story down. Now, we may not pick up on that because we watch TV and we've got movies and videos and all kinds of multimedia and surround sound, but if you were just from a society that reading was your way or public speaking was your way of getting information, then there are word triggers. There are things that help bring drama and you would feel it a little more acutely. So we see that Luke here is creating this verbal tension to draw particular attention to the words of Isaiah in the middle of this frame. So let's look at what Jesus said and let's, let's then compare what Isaiah actually wrote. So verse 18 says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty or release to the captives and the recovering of sight to the blind, 
to set at liberty or release those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now let's read Isaiah 61, verse 1 and 2. This is the location for most of Jesus' quote. Here are the original words of Isaiah. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. So there are several differences in what Isaiah wrote and what Jesus said. But the two I want to focus on are the words at the end of verse 18, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and the second half of Isaiah 61 verse 2, and the day of vengeance of our God. The first verse shows Luke's desire to indicate that the key theme of the ministry of Jesus was one of release. These words are actually a quotation from Isaiah 58, 6. So I don't know how he did it. I don't know if he was on 61 and decided to go back to 58, or if he's reading 61 and he remembers 58 and he just inserts it to kind of show where he's going with his thoughts. This idea of release comes from the Jewish tradition to release slaves and the indebted during the year of Jubilee. The year of Jubilee occurred every 50 years in Israel, or it was supposed to, and was meant to prevent systemic, multi-generational poverty, indebtedness, slavery. Moses wrote in Leviticus, You shall consecrate the fiftieth year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. That's Leviticus 25, verse 10. The amazing thing about this liberty was that those who had lost their inherited family lands were able to return to it. That's a pretty radical economic model. Not many people today would be willing to release those who owe them from their financial indebtedness. I can hear Adam Smith rolling over in his grave. So much for rational self-interest and competition. So the first deviation in the quote that Jesus reads is drawn from another verse. And it may be helpful to gain some context from the words in Isaiah 58, looking at verse 6 and 7. It says, Is not this the fast that I choose? He's talking about all these sacrifices and animal sacrifices and all this killing and bloodletting. And he's like, what what do I really want here? Is this not the fast that I choose to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house? When you see the naked to cover him, and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? Isaiah was saying here, stop with the sacrifices stuff. Let's help humanity. Let's connect with them. That's the sacrifice that God really wants. Later, I hope to show that this first message of Jesus' ministry, it remains consistent throughout his ministry, and that his final message will have the same elements. His vision was to see suffering and innocent, marginalized humanity delivered from their bondage, the cause of their torment, and to show how the church was to be the agents of this deliverance. This deliverance, however, should not be read first and foremost as material, but that is included. There is also a spiritual aspect. Marshall 
another commentator on Luke, he quotes from Boltman. In his commentary on this passage, he writes, In normal Christian use, the Greek word translated liberty or release means forgiveness, and it is possible that the Christian reader should hear this undertone in the word. In the sixth chapter of Luke, Jesus gives blessings to those who are poor, concluding that they should rejoice and leap for joy because the prophets suffered and were rejected like they were. A few verses later, Jesus warns the rich that they are in danger of being rejected like the false prophets. So we can read this passage in both the material and spiritual ways, and neither should be rejected. In general, though, we need to consider that the poor that Jesus is referring to are people who recognize their need of God and at the same time were socially marginalized. Think women, slaves, the poor, people of the lower social orders. To these people, Jesus was going to bring a release and an elevation of their status. He is addressing the tendency for the religious to relegate enemies or social outcasts or sinners to lives of bondage. A bondage that meant both material bondage because they didn't have opportunities and spiritual bondage because they were not accepted within the culture of the community of faith. There's no redemption in, under the old regime for these kind of uh, material and spiritual bondages. The second deviation in Jesus' quote from the text was actually a redaction. Jesus censored the words and the day of vengeance of our God. This redaction is actually in correspondence with the inclusion from Isaiah 58. Now, I'll get to that in a, a minute. But first, Jesus' abridgment of this text was like saying that all of Israel's hopes for vindication from their years of foreign oppression were negated. No hope of seeing their enemies suffer for their injustice. The saber rattling that probably occurred around kitchen tables and, and about how God was going to empower them and their Messiah to overthrow their enemies in battle was probably widespread. Teens smoking outside the synagogue would talk about how they'd kick Rome's butt someday. We know that's true because they attempted it in AD 66 through 70. This was a, a passion in them to, to destroy their enemies, and they believed that God was going to give vindication and vengeance through them, through their sword. I wonder if Jesus recognized the fact that all humans are a product of their varied experiences, both the good and the ugly. As a result, we are all the enemies of someone. We all need deliverance from enemies, and victims need deliverance from us. The answer for all humanity is the favor of the Lord, or as the last line of Jesus' quote from Isaiah, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Everyone is included in the Jubilee. All wrongdoing has been forgiven. We are granted our place in the inheritance of God. And as I said in a previous podcast, He owns everything. So we get to inherit. There's enough to go around. So you see how this redaction from Isaiah... Jesus' elimination of vengeance against enemies is correspondent to the inclusion of Isaiah 58, where the fast that God calls for is a release from indebtedness. The indebtedness of our enemies, we're to release them from that. 
And that's what Jesus is saying there. Who is God to take out vengeance on if everybody's been released from their indebtedness? If everyone is participating in the Jubilee, who is God to take out vengeance on? They've all been forgiven during the once and for all Jubilee that Jesus was bringing in. Forgiveness and the resulting reconciliation is the only path forward. So now let's let's continue reading and we'll continue with verse 20. And he rolled up the scroll and he gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. The tension in this room could be cut with a knife. When was the last time you heard a preacher read two verses and sit down? Not only did he only read two verses, he cut out the best part, the part where Israel's enemies were judged. And by extension, you can say it was a principle that applied to the enemies of everyone in that synagogue. They didn't want to release. They didn't want to forgive. They wanted vengeance on their enemies. All the eyes of the people in the synagogue were fixed on him. They sat there looking at him for some explanation. Again, Luke is building this tension. His response leads with the word, today. I love that. I just, I can imagine Jesus finally going, you know, letting it build, letting it build. You know, those awkward silences in church when somebody is supposed to do something, but they're not doing it. And everybody's like going, what's, what's supposed to happen next? Jesus then leads out today, which if we had time, we could um, mine that word and investigate it for all its meaning in Luke's writings. But today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Similar to Mary's proclamation in Luke 1, verses 47 through 55, notice all the fulfillment verbs in her praise of God. He has looked on. From now on, all generations. He has done. He has scattered the proud. He has exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry. And he has helped his servant. Something had happened. Mary knew it, and Jesus was proclaiming that that day, his ministry beginning, was the fulfillment of all that God had promised for the salvation of Israel. This final jubilee, where Israel's king would deliver them permanently, was occurring. Unfortunately for Jesus, his words showed too much grace to the outsider. So let's continue reading verse 22. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is this not Joseph's son? I agree with Marshall on this passage. The people spoke of him, but their words could have been good or bad. In the Greek, this is an, you know, an ambiguous term that could have gone either way based on context. So the words well of, following the word spoke, are added by the translators. I'm now quoting from Marshall. He says, Spoke means to bear witness to and can be taken in the sense to praise. He provides several examples from the Christian scripture, specifically from Acts, which is important because it was also written by Luke. But he goes on to say, or it could be in the sense to bear witness against, i.e. to condemn, he provides example verses like Matthew 23:31 and John 7:7 7, 7 and John 18:23 as evidence for a negative translation of the word. 
He goes on to admit that the interpretation is, quote, open to the objection that it produces an awkward transition between the people's praise of Jesus in the first part of verse 22 and the indignant surprise which follows in the second half of verse 22 and leads to mounting hostility in the rest of the story. This awkwardness is avoided if we adopt the latter sense, end quote. Or, in other words, the more negative translation is likely based on the final response of those that heard him. Walter Brueggemann, in his book, God, Neighbor, Empire, wrote regarding the story, quote, It is no wonder, back in Nazareth, that when they understood Jesus' meaning in his reading of Isaiah 61, they wanted to eliminate him. Of course, ordinary common theology has no place for the gracious slippage of a reach beyond quid pro quo, end quote. He was being gracious to their enemies and his hearers wanted vengeance. So assuming our translation should say something like, and all spoke evil against him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming out of his mouth, then their rhetorical question, is not this Joseph's son? is actually diminutive. It's a diminutive comment to make ridiculous Jesus' claim that the salvation and deliverance of Israel, as prophesied by Isaiah, was being fulfilled in him. Jesus' response to their question was, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his own hometown. It appears by Jesus' response that he believed their attitude toward him was negative, that he was a prophet being rejected by his hometown. Joel Green again claims that this proverb, physician heal yourself, was a, quote, well-known maxim of antiquity, end quote with a meaning that the physician's family should at least get the same health care treatment that he is providing to others. This makes sense of what Jesus predicts they will say, what we have heard you do at Capernaum, do here in your own hometown as well. So what's behind all this tension and drama? What's behind this scene? What's, where's this all leading? First, the rising popularity of Jesus was heard back in his hometown of Nazareth. According to verse 15, The synagogues in the surrounding country were excited about Jesus' preaching. But when Jesus deviates from what Brueggemann calls ordinary common theology, his family and friends begin to reject him. They thought, hey, as one of them, he should act to support their liberation from their enemies, Rome or whoever had them in bondage. Their rejection began by questioning his prophetic credentials. Oh, he's simply Joseph's son, the carpenter. See that minimization of him? But behind the rejection of Jesus was a seething hatred for their enemies wrapped in righteousness. Because Jesus selectively rejected the vengeance of God. When Jesus removed those words, the vengeance of God from Isaiah, he was saying, I'm redacting that. That was Isaiah's thought. That's not where we're going. He began to focus only on the gracious passages of Isaiah's prophecy. He exposed their heart. He was clearly not going to act on their behalf and in accordance with their cultural and ethnic biases. Now, they could have come back to Jesus and said, Hey, well, we have chapter and verse where vengeance will be executed on our enemies. 
Don't you believe the Bible, Jesus? Jesus was clearly being selective. They were correct. But let's notice, though, the two stories that Jesus decides to tell. Both are miraculous acts from two super prophets of Jewish history. No doubt his hearers knew these stories, but they were being selective as Jesus was. But their selections leaned towards a message that lacked grace, where Jesus wanted to embrace the grace and mercy and love of God. So let's finish reading. Verse 25. But in truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath, in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath, and they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built, so that they could throw him down off the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. Now that was a real homecoming. Jesus, the homeboy of Nazareth, legendary prophet, speaking in synagogues, comes home, big party, and it ends with them wanting to throw him over the brow of a hill. These two stories show that there were widows and lepers in Israel with needs, but the two prophets were sent by God to bring relief to non-Jews, foreigners, outsiders, people from nations known to be oppressors of Israel, people that Israel wanted vengeance on, It is not that Elijah and Elisha did not help Israelis, but they also extended God's grace to foreigners. Luke, the writer of this gospel, was an outsider, a Gentile. You can see why he wanted to communicate this story of Jesus to the Gentile converts around the Roman world. I wish we had time to dive into Miroslav Volf's thoughts on his book, Exclusion and Embrace. He claims that the gospel has both the aim and power to reconcile the tribes of the world. The same tendency to exclude existed in the first century as existed in Miroslav's home country. One of the challenges with presenting this material is that we can find ourselves excluding those in the synagogue in Nazareth who wanted to exclude others. You feel that tendency? You're like, oh, wow, they were rejecting Jesus. You know, reject you, man, let's call down fire. You remember when the disciples wanted to call down fire on that Samaritan city? And Jesus says, you have no idea what spirit you are of. These people, his disciples, were quoting from Elijah. Elijah calling down fire on the prophets of Baal. They had good Bible for it. But Jesus is saying, that's not the right spirit we're to have. We're not to call down fire on our enemies. Wolf, he quoting from Nietzsche, wrote, Nietzsche underscored the connection between the self-perceived goodness of Jesus' enemies and their pursuit of his death. Crucifixion was a deed of the good and the just, not of the wicked, as we might have thought. That was Wolf's comments regarding Nietzsche's comments. This was an act. The violence that was perpetrated against Jesus was not an act of ungodly pagans. This was an act of people of faith. 
people who were good and just. Wolf goes on, the good and the just could not understand Jesus because their spirit was imprisoned in their good conscience. That phrase there, imprisoned in their good conscience. That's, that's Miroslav Wolf again. They crucified him because they construed as evil his rejection of their notions of good. He goes on to say, exclusion can be as much a sin of a good conscience as it is of an evil heart. You see what he's saying? Those were good people in the synagogue in Nazareth, but their hearts changed towards Jesus from a provincial admiration of the homeboy Jesus to wanting to kill him because he violated a tenet of their goodness, that is, God's vengeance on bad people. We need to remember that we are someone's bad person, someone's oppressor, someone's enemy, someone's foreigner. So what should have been the response of the people in the Nazareth synagogue? How should we respond to excluders like them today? Wolf later in his book writes, quote, Jesus condemned the world of exclusion, a world in which the innocent are labeled evil and driven out, and in a world in which the guilty are not sought out and brought into the communion. Jesus' reminder to Israel about God's grace towards foreigners that day in Nazareth was not implying that God would allow suffering to continue unabated. But it was a recognition that both the innocent and the guilty needed deliverance. We all fall into one of those two categories at some point in our life. Our attitude towards others should be one of inclusion, where excluders are called out for their behavior, but not rejected from community. It's easy to fall into the tribe of the includers at the exclusion of all others. Remember that Paul said that Christ's sacrificial love was extended to us while we were yet enemies. This is the example we've been given, and no other Christian response seems viable to me. We must risk loving others. Who are the others in your life? Jesus did not die that day. He was able to pass through their midst as a foreshadowing of how he would pass from death to life following the cross. One of his last messages on the week of his death, Jesus said, Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. His message about the deliverance of the poor and imprisoned that he started his ministry with continued throughout his ministry. He was killed for his inclusion of others, the socially unacceptable and the marginalized. Persistent excluders will eventually be excluded, but our job as the church and our job as citizens of the world, if you're not a churchgoer, is to call them to reconciliation, offer them salvation, and include them in the community. What kind of world would that be? Let's look for the others in our lives and break with any ethnic and cultural beliefs that keep us separated. Let's search ourselves. To whom are we oppressors and foreigners? Let's speak words of reconciliation. Thank you for listening. 
There are hundreds of thousands of podcasts out there, and you could have chosen any, but I sincerely appreciate your investment and time into mine. The show notes for this and all episodes and other links to source material can be found on my website at rob-massey.com. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, rate it, and share it with a friend. Thanks again.